Now, friends, we come to another delightful little cluster of psalms, five of them, from Psalm 56 to 60. And they all are known as miktam psalms. You'll notice that each one of them is that way. For instance, Psalm 56, the first one, to the chief musician upon Jonah Elam Rehokim. And it's a miktam of David when the Philistines took him in Gath. Now, this is a miktam psalm. Now, what does that mean? Well, the word means engraven. And actually, it speaks of that which is substantial, that which is durable, that which is fixed. You remember David said, my heart is fixed. Well, that's a miktam, by the way. It means unmovable and steadfast and lasting stability and permanency and endurance. It has all of these meanings. These are wonderful psalms. And this first one now, the Miktam Psalms, Dalich called it the cheerful courage of a fugitive. And you will recall that in the last psalm, David talked about that if he only had the wings of a dove so he could fly away, lodge in the wilderness. In this psalm, the desire is realized, and the enemy's outside, and there's great danger, and the wicked's on every side. And in all of that, why, God delivered him. And, of course, the historical background is that the Philistines had taken him at Gath. That is, it captured David. And David's experience is written out here. Now, that experience is a picture of the great tribulation period again. All of these psalms have that prophetic look. And between the historical and the prophetic, between David's experience and the experience of those in the future, it has a real message for us today. And it speaks to our own hearts for all of these psalms do that. And I'm going to read now a translation here. It's not one of the public translations. It's a private translation made by a man whom I respect a great deal. And I'm reading this translation. You follow in your text. Be gracious unto me, O God, for man would swallow me up. Throughout the day fighting, he oppresseth me. They are watching me and would swallow me up the whole day. For many are they that fight against me in pride. David, you see, surrounded by the enemy. Seems to be on a hot seat and in a bad spot. Then what's he going to do in a case like this? Well, he says, when I was afraid. Was David afraid? He certainly was. Are you afraid? I had a couple say to me, they heard me make the statement that when I go by plane, I don't enjoy the trip. There's a fear in my heart. And they thought there's something wrong with my faith in God. My friend, may I say to you, fear will bring out faith in your life. Listen to David. When I'm afraid, I'll trust in thee. (laughs) And I'm afraid these people today that sit back comfortably and say, well, you know, I haven't any fear. Well, that may mean that you really are insensitive to what the circumstances really are and the problem really is. 
or it may be a foolish sort of a faith. But David said, I'm afraid. And in these circumstances, David was afraid. What did he do? Why well, he says, I'll trust in thee. I'm going to trust the Lord. Can you fear and have faith at the same time? Because the Scripture says, perfect love casteth out all fear. Love will do it, but you can still have faith and still be afraid. I hope that'll be a comfort to some folk today because there's a lot of foolish things being said that actually are not scriptural. Then down in this psalm, and I'm going to drop down now, there's a very wonderful statement made, and it's down in verse 8. Will you notice this? This is a very wonderful thing. He says here, Thou countest my wanderings. The Lord knows about every trip you make. I have thought of that a great deal since I've been studying the Psalms this time, because since I've retired, I've been going from place to place. And I sometimes ask my wife, I said, what did I speak about when we were in this certain place in Ohio or down in Florida or back in Texas or up in the state of Washington or out in the Hawaiian Islands? I forget what I was speaking about. And then she'll tell me, the Lord's got all that written down. If I could just have access to his book, it would be great. Notice what he says, Thou countest my wanderings. My tears have been put into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? Now, you will find a note in this New Schofield Bible that says sometimes in olden days in the East, mourners would catch their tears in bottles, that is, water skins, and place them at the tombs of their loved ones, you know, to show how much they grieve. Well, let me add something to that that John Bunyan, the tinker of Bedford, has said, and I think this is wonderful. He said this, and I'm quoting now, God preserves our tears in a bottle so that he can wipe them away someday. You know, friend, When I read that, I wish I'd cried more. (laughs) We need to weep more, because God keeps them in a bottle, and he's going to wipe them away someday. How wonderful this is. And then he goes on to say, which is very wonderful here, "...in God will I praise his word. In the Lord will I praise his word." Someone wrote and said to me, you make too much of the Bible everlastingly talking about the Word of God. That's what David did. He said, in God will I praise his Word. In the Lord will I praise his Word. Well, there's so few that are praising the Word of God, I want to make up for them. So I'm praising God for his Word. And then he says, I'll not be afraid what man can do unto me. And wonderful to have a resource and a recourse to God. And here he says, the last verse, For thou hast delivered my soul from death. Wilt not thou deliver my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of the living? Now, David said, and especially after his sin, David said, I want to walk before God, that I don't slip up again. And as far as the record is concerned, David didn't slip up again. Now, the king of Babylon committed that kind of sin every day of the year. It was an old hat for him, but not for David. 
And David says, I want to walk before God. And today, you and I are joined to walk in the Spirit. God has given us not just a walking stick, more than that. To walk in the Spirit means to be utterly and absolutely dependent upon the Spirit of God. And this, my friend, gets right down where the rubber meets the road. It means to get down and practice this, as we saw in Galatians. It means get down out of your high chair and start walking. You're going to fall on your head, going to hurt yourself. Sure you are, but you're going to learn to walk if you attempt to walk in the Spirit of God. Commit yourself to him every day. This is a wonderful psalm, a Mictam psalm. Now we come to the second Mictam psalm, and that's Psalm 57. And that has an added title. It is called Altasheth, Altasheth. And what does that mean? That means destroy not. And that has a very wonderful meaning as we get into this psalm here. And we're told that it's to the chief musician, Altasheth, Mictam of David, when he fled from Saul in the cave. Now, David spent time in the caves that were along the Dead Sea, down at En Gedi. I was there in May. I didn't want to be down there in summer. It's a very hot spot below sea level. And it's a very delightful place, I would say, in wintertime. And David spent time in the caves up there. That's rugged country. And the cave of Adullam is up in that area also. Now, it's the belief of many expositors that this has reference to the cave of Adullam. And here is where David meditated on many of these psalms which he composed. And the sufferings of David... Are here, and they foreshadowed the sufferings of Christ. And again, looking on to the godly remnant during the time of Jacob's trouble. And they speak to us today. That's the wonder of the Word of God. Now, will you notice? Be merciful unto me, O God, be gracious to me. I don't know about you today, but that's my prayer. I want God to be merciful to me. I don't want him to be just with me and righteous, because if he does, I'm going to get a whipping. (laughs) I want him to be merciful unto me, and I want him to be gracious to me. And he's that kind of a God. He's rich in mercy. He's got enough for me, got enough for you too. And I take up a whole lot of it, by the way. Now, will you notice? For in thee hath my soul taken refuge. And in the shadow of thy wings will I find shelter. Now, here is a very wonderful psalm. David is saying here, In the shadow of thy wings will I find shelter. Now, David found that. This nation didn't. The Lord Jesus said to them in Matthew twenty-three thirty-seven, How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and you would not. And today, are we willing to come under his wings? That means to be obedient unto him, you see. And it means we're to love him. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And it means to walk again in the Spirit. Now, there's some wonderful statements here 
it says, He shall send from the heavens and save me. And then again, he says, God shall send forth his loving kindness and his truth. Aren't those wonderful statements? And he says, my soul is among lions. Satan goes up and down this world like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he has a lot of little lions, too, that are helping him. Now he says here, and remember these Miktam Psalms have to do with that which is permanent, that which is durable, that which is substantial, that which is lasting. David says here, my heart is fixed, O God, my heart is fixed. Verse 7. And then down to the next verse, he says, I will wake the morning dawn. (laughs) What a beautiful, wonderful expression that is. I will wake the morning dawn. The night is over now. And the night of sin and of suffering and of Satan's rule is over now, and the morning is come, and the Son of Righteousness has risen with healing in his wings. What a wonderful psalm this is. Now I come to the 58th psalm, and this psalm that we have is another Al-Tashith psalm as well as being a Miktam psalm. Now, it means this is something that is substantial and durable, and it means destroy not. And again, will you notice, this is a question, and who asks it? Bishop Horn thought that God was the one that asked this question here. And it goes like this, Is righteousness indeed silent? Do ye judges speak it? Do ye with uprightness judge the children of man? You know, the Lord's going to call on the judges to turn in their report to him someday. And it is apparently God speaking now using the pen of David, of course. Now we come down to a prayer here, and it's an imprecatory prayer. He's speaking about these enemies that are about him, that work there like a serpent, and they are those that are his enemies, that seek to destroy him. And he asks six things, that is, six destructions he prays for here. Break their teeth, O God, in their mouth. Break out the great teeth of the young lions, O God. Now, the enemy was like a lion. And I don't know about you. Somebody says, a Christian can't pray this prayer. I pray the Lord is going to absolutely deal with Satan, and he's the roaring lion. I hope God breaks his teeth, my friend. I don't consider that unchristian at all. And David was speaking of his enemies in that day, and he's under law. He's asking for justice. Break their teeth, O God, in their mouth. Now he says, using another figure of speech, let them melt away like waters which run continually. Why, the wickedness was like a flood. And now he asks God, Let that flood of wickedness just melt away. And then the third one, when he bendeth his bow to shoot his arrows, let them be as cut in pieces. And he's like a marksman that is shooting at him, you see. What a picture that you have here. And then we have another picture that's given. Like a snail which melteth, let every one of them pass away. That's the fourth one. And the snail, here's apparently an unusual snail in that country. 
and that snail under the sun would absolutely be melted. But the snail goes through and leaves his slimy trail. And David says, evaporate him. Get rid of that slimy trail through the world today. And then we find the fifth thing here, like the untimely birth of a woman that they may not see the sun. That is, may they not come to fruition in the things that they plan in the evil womb of their minds. May it come to naught. And now the sixth and last figure of speech he uses, he says, "...before your pots can feel the burning thorns, he shall take them away as with a whirlwind, both living and in his wrath." You gather together these thorns to put under the pot to heat it, and a wind comes along and blows them away. And he says, "...oh God, remove them before they can do their dirty work, before they can burn and sear." I think this is a tremendous prayer. Now the next prayer which is Psalm 59. It's also a miktam and an al-tashit of David. And it's along the same line. And prophetically, this psalm describes the suffering remnant during the tribulation surrounded by enemies. I'll not go into detail there. Then the 60th is the last of these miktam psalms. And it is a time when actually David was victorious. He was victorious over his enemies. That is, the Edomites were defeated in a great slaughter. And this is a picture of the deliverance that God is going to give to his people someday. O God, thou hast cast off, thou hast scattered us, thou hast been angry, restore us again. And now there is that cry in verse 6. Here is the answer. God hath spoken in his holiness. I will exult. I will portion out Shechem and measure out the valley of Succoth, and so on. What a glorious, wonderful thing is. And how will it be accomplished? Who will bring me into the fortified city? Who will lead me into Edom? Wilt not thou, O God, who didst cast us off? In other words, God will restore them. God will restore his saints today, though they be in trouble and difficulty and even in sin, God restore them. My, isn't God good? Now today, friends, we come to Psalm 61. And when we come to this section here, we've come to another cluster of psalms. Last time we ended the Mictam Psalm of David. Now, this new series ends with the 68th Psalm, from 61 to 68. Why, we have here eight Psalms, and here you listen to the pleadings of the godly. And you find here beautifully described their steadfast confidence in the Lord. And I think we're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ in these Psalms, and also I trust that we'll find great help for ourselves. Now, will you listen as this 61st Psalm opens up? This is a prayer of David, and David is crying out in a very real way. And this is a psalm that you play with a stringed instrument. Now, I honestly believe that Here's a psalm that you could use a guitar on. That is, if you used it aright, 
and it would have a message because there is a mourning that is sheer. And this is a heart cry. And very frankly, this is the thing that makes modern prayer meetings so stereotyped and so uninteresting. All we do is to go and meet together and turn in a grocery list to the Lord of the things that we want. We ask him to take them down off the shelf and give them to us, and we won't have to go through the checker and check us out and pay for them. May I say to you, that has, I think, killed prayer today. Now, real prayer, there is the mechanics of it and the arrangement of prayer. I believe in all of that. And those of you that have been with us from the beginning as we've studied the different prayers, we do see that they're organized. But after all, a prayer should come from the heart. You don't hear that deep heart cry today in prayer. Now, listen to this one, will you? Hear my cry, O God, attend unto my prayer. From the end of the earth will I cry unto thee when my heart is overwhelmed. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Now, this is such a wonderful one here. He says, from the end of the earth do I call upon thee. Do you ever feel like that when you pray? That is, that God is way up yonder and we're way down here. David says, when I pray sometimes, it seems like I'm way down at the end of the earth. And God is way off up yonder. And he's trying to draw closer, you see. What a wonderful thought you have here in this prayer. Now he says he wants to get to a rock that's higher than he is. The reason, very frankly, that I'm opposed to this modern viewpoint of Jesus, and I'm opposed to that play that came out some time ago, Jesus Christ Superstar is, because of Jesus there's no superstar at all. He's just a man like I am. He's a rock that's no higher than I am. I need to be led to the rock that's higher than I and I found in the Word of God that Jesus Christ is the rock that is higher than I am. And he's the rock on which the church is being built today. What a picture we have here. Listen to him in verse 3. For thou hast been a shelter for me and a strong tower from the enemy. What a beautiful picture of God. He's a shelter. That's from the storm. And a strong tower. That's for protection, you see from the enemy. And he says, I'll abide in thy tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of thy wings, Selah. And again, you have the wings. This is the thing the Lord Jesus had reference to. He says, how often would I have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her little one. Now, listen to him in verse 5. For thou, O God, hast heard my vow. He made vows to God. He promised God something. Now, we ask things of God. Do you ever promise anything? I've promised him lots more than I've delivered. I know that. Have you ever promised him something? We go to God continually and we ask him for something. But have you ever promised you're going to do something for him? Have you ever done that? David says, I hear that he's made vows and you've heard them. And 
Thou hast given me the heritage of those who fear thy name. Thou wilt prolong the king's life and his years as many generations. He shall abide before God forever. Oh, prepare mercy and truth. And here we go again. You know, David needed the mercy of God. And I believe the closer that we get to God, friends, we won't bring him down to our level, but we'll see him high and lifted up, and we'll recognize that we're in the same position as Isaiah. Isaiah said, I fell at his feet as dead. Isaiah got down on all fours before him. And that's the position that we get in the closer we get to him. Now, will you notice here he says, Verse 8, So I will sing praise unto thy name forever, that I may daily perform my vows. Make your vows, and then get close to him. Sing his praises, and he'll help you fulfill it. Now we come to this 62nd Psalm. I have a little book that's been out for many years on this, and I call it the only psalm. It's not because that there are not other psalms. There are 149 other psalms besides this one. So it's not the only one in that sense. But it's the way the little word only is used. Now, notice the superscription here is to the chief musician, to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. Now, we've already had a Jeduthun psalm. He was one of the chief musicians. His name is mentioned several times, and we had him back in Psalm 39, and we're going to have him again. This is a psalm either to him, apparently one that he led, the orchestra and the choir, to sing. Now, it's a psalm that has this little word only, again and again and again. And this is a very simple psalm. It's a psalm of simple faith. It reveals a faith and confidence in God that's akin to that of a child's faith and a parent. And notice how the word only is used here. Actually, the first word here, truly, is really only. And it could be, my soul waiteth only upon God. And then verse 2, he only is my rock. And verse 4, they only consult. And then verse 5, my soul Wait thou only upon God. Verse 6, he only is my rock. And the word actually, verse 9, surely is only. Only man of low degree and vanity and so on. And you'll find that marvelous faith in this psalm and very simply stated. And then you find that David makes comments as he goes through. He draws lessons from it. Now, a very wonderful thing has been said about this psalm, and I'd like to just read that because I think that we need to see this here. It is by Peroni. It says, Scarcely anywhere do we find faith in God more nobly asserted, more victoriously triumphant. The vanity of man, of human strength and riches, more clearly confessed, Courage in the midst of peril, more calm and more unshaken than in this psalm, which is as forcible in its conception and its language as it is remarkable for the vigorous and cheerful piety it breathes. 
That's the end of the quotation. What a beautiful thing this is. Now, since I have a little book on it, and I'm not sure but what that is available today. In fact, I'm almost sure this is available in book form. Let me lift out here, I think, some very wonderful things that you have in here. He says, Truly are my soul only waiteth upon God. From him cometh my salvation. Now, there's several things that I want you to know. God is called his salvation. He's called his rock. He's called his defense. And he is called his expectation. And it's repeated again that he's the glory and the rock and the refuge. All of that you have in this. And you notice again, it's very personal. Truly, my soul waiteth upon God. From him cometh my salvation. Very possessive, very personal. He only is my rock, my salvation, my defense. I shall not be moved. This is a very wonderful psalm. And I want to give you another wonderful quotation relative to this psalm before we get away from it. And that is that of Donnie. And here is what he says, and listen to this because it's worth remembering. I begin the quotation. Twice in the psalm, he has repeated this in the second and sixth verse. He is my rock, my salvation, my defense, my refuge, and my glory. Now, if my refuge, what enemy can pursue me? If my defense, what temptation shall wound me? If my rock, what storm shall shake me? If my salvation, what melancholy shall deject me? If my glory, what calumny shall defame me? Let him that is pursued with any particular temptation invoke God, as God is his refuge and his sanctuary. Let him that is buffeted by the messengers of Satan battered with his own concupiscence, receive God as God is his defense. Let him that is shaken with perplexities lay hold upon God as God is his rock and his anchor. Let him that has any diffident suspicion of the free and full mercy of God apprehend God as God is his salvation and him that walks in the ingloriousness and contempt of the world contemplate God as his glory. That's the end of the quotation. Now, isn't that a wonderful expression? Now, friends, let me make a suggestion. This psalm that so simply states this wonderful relationship with God. And you notice how David just pours out his heart to God in this way, just talks to him. You're my salvation. You're my rock. And there's so many folks that today are uptight in a prayer meeting. They're uptight in a church service. They feel a pressure in prayer. We want to say the right words and say the right things. All right, fine. Public prayer is all right. But let me suggest that you go aside. Maybe you just drive along in your car if you can't find a good quiet corner somewhere. Go to a room in your home. 
Go to a place where you can be quiet before God. And then why don't you just one time, and so many people today need to, shall I say, take the lid off. There is a time to gird up your loins, and there's a time, my friend, to take off the girdle and just let yourself go before God. You know, to do a lot of you saints good, because I've tried it. And just go to him. The first shaggy rug I've ever had when I was pastoring Pasadena, a group, uh, I think one of the ladies' groups, put it down in my study. And I never seen a shaggy rug before, and I liked it very much. And I used to get down on that rug just on my face before God, just pour out my heart to him. My friend, it'll do you good. I think it would be the best tonic that you could possibly have. Oh, how wonderful it would be. Now, I'm not going to spend any more time with this psalm because I have a little book on it. I want you to have it. Now, we come over to the 63rd psalm. And here you have another one of these wonderful psalms. And it's an ointment that is poured out upon all kinds of sores. It's a band-aid for bruises. It's a balm to put upon the wounds to heal him. And it's a wonderful psalm. And I want you to notice it because this has been a very marvelous psalm for the church. Chrysostom says that it was ordained and agreed by the primitive fathers that no day should pass without the public singing of this psalm. And in the primitive church, this psalm, the 63rd, it was sung every morning or every time there was a public gathering. They always began the morning service with it. Listen to it. And again, you have expressed here these wonderful thoughts. And I'm using this translation. Listen to it. O God, thou art my God. Early do I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh pineth for thee in a dry, thirsty land without water. As I gazed upon thee in the sanctuary to see thy power and glory. Now, it's faith can speak like this, and only faith. Knowing that there is a God, the eternal one, and he transcends all human thinking. He's the creator. He's the redeemer. He's my father. And early do I seek thee. And David knew what it was to be thirsty. David had been down there around the Dead Sea. We've mentioned that before. There's that cave of Engedi down there. That was one of his strongholds. Friends, that's the driest land I've ever seen. California and Arizona and New Mexico haven't anything that could touch that dry land over there. And it's a place where you can get thirsty. You make sure that you're pretty close to the soda pop stand when you go over there and you have water along with you. It's a great psalm, you know, because it speaks of the thirst of the soul for God. You feel that way about him? Or has he become a great burden to you? Oh, to have a love for him. And listen to this man here. So will I bless thee while I live. I lift up my hands in thy name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. Why, David says, I'd rather, oh, I'd rather just have fellowship with God than have a gourmet dinner. 
My, how wonderful this is. And it was the psalm of the morning. I used to sing it in the church. Maybe we can't sing it today. I don't know, but a great psalm. Now we come to the 64th psalm, and this is a psalm that has a historical basis. You can't exactly locate where, but it is in the life of David. David wrote this psalm here. And prophetically, it's in line with all of these psalms that's in this series. It looks yonder to the future, to a day when these people are in great tribulation and the godly remnant will use this psalm. Somebody said, my, they have a lot of psalms for that day. They're going to need them, friends, every one of them. And then it is also a very fine psalm again for us today. Listen to him. Hear my voice, O God, in my prayer. Preserve my life from fear of the enemy. Hide me from the secret counsel of the wicked, from the insurrection of the workers of iniquity. David again and again prayed a prayer like this, asking God to hide him. And his refuge was prayer. And it was the only refuge that David had. And this reveals that. It'll be the only refuge that these people will have in that day. And friends, I'm coming to the conclusion as I look about me in this world right now, in the condition that it is, our hope is no longer in statesmen or politicians, and our hope is no longer in science. Our hope is no longer in education. They're more or less a failing us. We're going to have to do what Israel will do in that day and what David did. We're going to have to start looking up. He is our hope today and our only hope. Maybe that's what he's trying to get us to do. Now, when we come to the 65th Psalm, it is what is known as a restoration psalm. This is what is called, we're told in Acts 3.21, the restitution of all things as spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets. When you talk about the restitution of all things, this doesn't mean everybody's going to be saved. It means the restitution of all things that are to be that. Paul said, I've suffered the loss of all things. Well, he didn't own the world, did he? No. He suffered the loss of all the things he had to lose. And this is the restitution of all things. And it's a great psalm along that line. I'm not going into detail in this psalm either. Praise waiteth for thee, O God, in Zion. And friends, Zion here doesn't mean the heavenly Zion. Zion here was a geographical spot down here on this earth. I've been to that place. That's geography. That's the name of it. There was a sign that said, The weight of Mount Zion, air on it, Mount Zion. said, That's the way to go. I went up there, and I didn't go to heaven that day. I can assure you that. It was a long, hard pull up there. When he's talking about Zion here, and then you have the redeemed remnant during this period. This is a wonderful psalm here, the 65th. Then I come to the 66th psalm. And did David write this? He could have. doesn't say. It says to the chief musician, a song or song. And this is a psalm of praise. And we have no historical background for it at all. There have been many guesses, I can assure you that, about this psalm. And it's a great psalm of praise unto God. And it's a psalm of wonderful worship. Bless our God, all ye peoples, verses 8, 
And this is a psalm that I think looks forward to that future day. Well, speaks of the day when they'll be restored to the land. And as Ezekiel said, they will offer sacrifices in that day, and we find that they will. What's the explanation of it? Well, I think just as they look forward to the coming of Christ, for those people, when they offer a sacrifice, it'll look back to the coming of Christ. Because every lamb will point to the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Now, friends, this 67th Psalm is one of the shortest psalms of a prophetic nature that we have. And it has, you'll notice, seven stanzas. Now, I believe that the numbers in Scripture do have a meaning. I think you can go to see it in that direction also. But the number seven seems to be not so much the number of perfection as the number of completeness. And in the sense that it is complete, why, there is the perfection always implied. But I think that completeness is the thing. And this gives us, as it were, a great song that reveals the ultimate and final desire and purpose of God for this earth. And actually, it's a great psalm of the kingdom. And we need to recognize that, that it's a psalm of the kingdom. And there are certain things in this psalm that are quite wonderful, and we'll spend a few moments here today. It's been labeled a missionary psalm. For instance, the Expositor's Bible says this, This psalm is a truly missionary psalm. And then they proceed to give the outmoded post-millennial interpretation of the church converting the world. Now, it's not a missionary psalm as such. Actually, the church is not in this psalm at all. In fact, I think that by now, many of you have discovered that at least we do not believe the church is in the Psalms only in a figure of speech or in a symbol. We saw it in the 45th Psalm as the queen in the gold of Ophir that was there. And that is, the church will be with the Lord Jesus when he reigns on the earth. Now, this actually is a prophetic psalm. It looks beyond this age to the kingdom. It's a millennial kingdom we're talking about. And there you see a converted world, a renovated world, and it's a world in which God shall bless us and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. The curse will be removed, and then I'll be able to sing the hallelujah chorus. Now, I want to use this today as an example of the fact that there is a difference between interpretation and the application of Scripture. And we need to learn to make that one of the simplest rules of Scripture, and one that I'm afraid that a great many theologians and Bible teachers in our seminaries have forgotten. It's so simple, they want to be very esoteric today and intellectual, so they miss these simple things. And the simple thing is this, all Scripture is for us, But all Scripture is not to us. And so we have that actually here. But it's for us. Now, we see here, first of all, the perspective of missions 
here. Now, somebody's going to say to me, how can you possibly get missions into a psalm if it looks beyond the church? Well, there's a great principle of hermeneutics. Now, that's the science of interpretation, and that means to distinguish between interpretation and application. Interpretation is definitive. It's like a mole. It's basic. And Scripture doesn't mean everything under the sun you want it to mean. It means one thing. But there is an application, and that application must rest upon the interpretation if it is to be accurate, and the application can be elastic. I can illustrate that with a very simple illustration. Now, a diamond, to be of any practical value, it first must be mounted in a proper setting. Then it may be worn on any finger it fits. I was in Washington for the first time several years ago, and I went to the Smithsonian, and among other things, I saw the Hope Diamond. And by the way, it was quite interesting. great many people were passing by all the space exhibit, but they all were looking at that Hope Diamond. And I suppose that that's the covetousness that's in the hearts of all of us. That Hope Diamond was there. But I could see it as no value. It couldn't be worn on any finger. It's just, there it is. And I'm told if anything happened there, that that diamond where it rests, the case that it's in, it would go down in the basement somewhere in a vault. It's not doing anybody any good, as I can see, and no personal good at all. It's just a big diamond, ill-starred and ill-fated. Now, a diamond, therefore, must be in a setting. Scripture must first be put in a proper setting, and that's interpretation. Then it may be placed on the finger of experience, and that's application. We have an old bromide that says, if the shoe fits you, put it on. If you come to one of these psalms and it speaks to your heart, and God can speak to you in all of them, and I hope he does in all of them, why, it has a message. The interesting thing is that God's message to the seven churches of Asia, when the Lord Jesus spoke to them, it had a local application and a local interpretation, I believe, that God was speaking and the Lord Jesus was speaking directly to a local church. But he concluded it by saying, Here, and that's for the fellow that's got ears, and if you've got ears... He's talking to you. Let him that hath ears hear what the Spirit saith to what? The churches. And so there's a message in every one of them for us. Now, that's application. Now, this is not a missionary psalm. I'll repeat that, but there are great principles here. Now, there are in this psalm several things that are quite interesting. There were the seven stanzas. Bless us is there three times. Praise thee is there four times. And there are three persons or groups here. God, and I think he's mentioned 15 times there, and the Trinity is there, and us, and that is not the United States. That's mentioned six times, and it's just as far-fetched to say that it's the church as to say it's the United States. Israel is mentioned, and in verse 6, it's even our own God. 
And that means Israel there. And the nations are mentioned nine times. That means foreigners, their peoples or races, and different stratas of society. That means you and it means me. Now, notice how the psalm opens here. And it opens with a reference to the Trinity, strange as this may seem. God be merciful unto us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. Selah. Now, we've had that face, the face of God before. And we have said that even from the beginning, some of the teachers of Israel said that the face of God means the Messiah. And you have that here, and that's a reference, by the way, to that great threefold Trinitarian blessing that God gave to the nation Israel when he prepared them for the wilderness march. He gave it to them in Numbers 6, 24 and 26. And you've heard it many times at a wedding. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. That's God the Father. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. That's the Messiah. That's Jesus. That's Christ. That's our Savior. And then, verse 26, The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. And only the Spirit of God can do that. So we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A threefold blessing here. And it says, They shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. So here we have that reference to it. So this is the fulfillment of it in the millennium. Now, notice what he says here as we go on through after this ironic blessing. And we have here that thy way may be known upon earth by saving health upon all nations. Now, there's no blessing for the earth until Israel actually is back in the land. I don't mean as they are today. I mean put there by the Lord. When he puts them there, they'll be able to do what Isaiah said in Isaiah 49, 13. Sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, for the Lord hath comforted his people and will have mercy upon his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me. Can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet will I not forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. Now, that's what God says concerning these people. Now, either God meant it or he didn't mean it. And far as I'm concerned, he meant it. Now, will you notice verse 3? Let the people praise thee, O God. Let all the people praise thee. Now, here is a marvelous, wonderful picture that we have here before us. Now, verse 4, O let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for thou shalt judge the people righteously and shalt govern the nations upon earth. And here is this marvelous blessing that God had promised to Abraham, I'll make you a blessing to all peoples, all nations. And the Lord Jesus made it very clear, salvation is of the Jews. That was his first coming. Now, this is his second coming, and there will be a converted earth at that time when he comes. 
And the greatest time of salvation, I believe, is in the future. But that's not in this age, not until the millennium will this come true, nor can it come true. I don't think it's possible at all for it to come true in our day. For instance, Isaiah 66, 19 says, I will set a sign among them. I'll send those that escape them unto the nations to Tarshish, pull Lud, that draw the board to Tubal and Javan to the isles afar off, that have not heard my fame, neither have seen my glory. They shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. This is a glorious, wonderful psalm. Now, you have here this tremendous picture that is given to us. I move on down. Let the people praise thee, O God. Let all the people praise thee. Now we come down here to this wonderful program that God has. What is the goal of God, God's desire, that we should get Israel back to the land? No, we're to preach the gospel. That would indeed be foolish just to be interested in getting them back to the land. But it's no more foolish than try to convert the world. The church will not bring in the kingdom by preaching. I can assure you that the Scripture makes it very clear. Romans eleven twenty five. Paul says, I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel. How long? Until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. All right, let me read on. I must move through this psalm. Then shall the earth yield or increase, the curse of sin will be removed from the earth, you see. And God, even our own God, shall bless us. Now, God shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. Now, let me drop down and make this final comment, because I think this is important for us to see. Suppose this day I should ask you, what is the primary objective of mission? What is the purpose of mission? Why should we be engaged in it? What would you say? Now, maybe way out yonder somewhere, somebody will say the purpose of missions is to save souls. And my answer is no, that's not the purpose. Somebody says, you don't mean that. I do mean that, friends. Aren't we trying to get people saved? Yes. But that's not the primary purpose. Will you notice this? We should preach the gospel to every creature in order to obey the command of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our orders. We're to get the gospel out. We're to get the word of God out. Now, somebody says that's the motive. Well, you're closer to the truth. But honestly, I don't think that's quite it. What is the purpose of mission? What is the final goal? Why should we be doing this today? Will you listen now to this psalm and let me lift it out again? Let the people praise thee, O God, that all the people praise thee. Verse 7, God shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. Now, that's reverential trust in God. What is the final goal of missions? Let the people praise thee, O God. Let all the people praise thee. What does that mean? The chief end of missions is to glorify God. That's the purpose of this broadcast, to glorify God. 
Now, will you listen to me very carefully? That is the engine that's to pull the train today of this broadcast and of every mission program is to glorify God, and that which follows it is this. It's to preach the gospel. It's to get the word out. It's to get people saved. Why? All that our God might be glorified. I wonder if we've lost that objective today. There is in the catechism that I had to learn. I used to could give it all. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the purpose of man down here. Why are you in existence down here? Is it the purpose down here for us to eat the meat and the fish and leave behind an empty dish? Is that all that man is supposed to do? No, man is to glorify God. We glorify him when we get his word out. We glorify him when we preach the gospel. We glorify God when people are saved. But the purpose is to glorify God. Friends, I hope I got that over to you. If I didn't, I'd like to come in right where you are right now and sit down and let's talk this thing over. Because it's very important that we put the primary purpose first, that we get things in a correct perspective. I spent too much time there. Maybe I didn't.